Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a sunny but cool day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Colin McGregor-Patterson. Colin is the CEO of drug, alcohol and social care charity, the Oasis Partnership, which operates across Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire. Uh, Colin, very warm welcome to yourself this afternoon and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Real pleasure having you on the airwaves with us, Colin. Um, normally, we would dive straight in to the subject of leadership in this discussion and bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there because it has, I'm sure you'll agree, proven to be one of the most significant challenges for leaders in all walks of life of our time, really. But how has it affected you and your organisation? Well, it has been um, yeah, it has been challenging, obviously. Um, but with the with the substance misuse service, we subcontract to the NHS, um, and collectively we kind of really took action very quickly uh, in relation to lockdown um, to support our service users. I mean, obviously, uh, probably about seventy five percent of our clients are um, on uh, prescriptions for substitute uh, opiate substitute medication. So obviously, it's really, really important for, for them to receive their prescriptions. And those first few days were really, really hectic for everyone, really. The staff couldn't come into the buildings, but we had to make sure that everyone was offering, um, you know, effective support on, on the telephone. Um, there was, you know, some extreme people extremely worried about getting their prescriptions and things initially. Um, that, was, that, that was very hectic, and uh, our NHS partners led on that process, which um, I think, you know, they did a fantastic job at the time. Um, and subsequently, you know, a lot of, you know, we're, we're still supporting many people in the community and we are still achieving successful outcomes, but it is very, very different. We used to run a lot of groups, um, a lot of kind of drop-in services, we had, you know, two, two recovery cafes that people would come into quite regularly. There was quite a supportive community amongst, you know, amongst the service users and suddenly that was, was sort of stopped. Um, but obviously, with telephone and, and online support, it did mean that we could reach out to a lot of our service users quite quickly, um, which obviously had a had a big impact on their their own emotional health and well being. Um, over time, we did sort of start realising that um, you know some people were experiencing some sort of mental health issues and you know emotional issues. Um, we sort of upped the telephone support from the key workers during that time. Um, we were running clinics. Um, but again, they had to be very uh, carefully, you know, run under really quite strict clinical standards. Um, but I think during that time, I don't think we had that many complaints. Um, you know, the problem is that things are ongoing. You know, there doesn't seem to be an end to it. Um, but what we did do, we turned um, quite a few of our groups into online groups quite quickly. Um, we also uh, managed to make sure that uh, every service user had a phone. So they could access us and access the groups. Um, that was again quite challenging, but we managed to sort that out. Um, but the online groups proved, you know, really beneficial. The feedback that we have had from those that it kind of may, maybe gave a bit of structure to people's weeks. Mm. Even you know, they, they may not have been doing much the rest of the weeks, but knowing that on Thursday they had like a two-hour art group or something was really beneficial. Um, also, one one of the other services that Oasis does run that. that uh, complement the the core drug and alcohol service, but is, is an independent project we run. Is the Bus Sleepers Project in Aylesbury, 
And that again was very, um, it kind of just had to hit the ground running. Uh, I think every other organization um, sort of went back, you know, working from the offices or working from home, whereas uh, as outreach workers, it, it was our job to go out onto the streets. And th- those first two weeks were um, were really important in relation to, I think, supporting the uh, our homeless population. There's probably about 25, 25 people living rough at the time when we the lockdown initially happened. Um, we worked very well collaboratively with the council and with other housing providers to manage to get these people into hotels or supported accommodation um, or even just independent flats. Um, but it was kind of, there was only a couple of people um, actually out on the street doing that work. I think what really hit with the with the rough sleepers was it was all sort of talk, you know, we, we were telling them, you know, as soon as we could about things that were going to happen and, and what's happening, you know, in communities in, in kind of thing. But they, um, I think when actual lockdown happened and when suddenly the streets were absolutely empty, it was really eerie. I think that's that kind of when it really hit, hit a lot of them and they really thought, you know, this, this is quite real. Um, but luckily, as I said, you know, there's, there was good systems in place to get them into accommodation. We've actually had some really, really good outcomes that, I think you know if we didn't have the COVID lockdown, we wouldn't have been able to engage some of the people at the level that we could engage with them when they're in in, in accommodation. And that really, I think, it really has transformed some people's lives around seeing as where they were um, and where they probably would have stayed for a lot longer mm. had lockdown not happened. So, so, so generally, it's had a it has had a big impact. But I think collectively, we've kind of pulled together and you know we're doing the best we can for our service users has been a bit of an impact. So, for example, in, in August, we received a 70, 73% increase in alcohol referrals for alcohol treatment compared to the same month last year. And obviously, alcohol is a big, big issue and and, and impacted you know, many, many people. So, um, the impact has been massive and we're still, it still feels like we're in the middle of it. Um, so, kind of, hopefully, there will be light at the end of the tunnel, um, but it, it has been challenging. But I think what has, really happened. There's been much, much more collaboration uh, between organisations and, and local authority. Um, you know, planning meetings, okay, it's all, a lot of it's on Zoom or Teams, but we have found, well, I certainly found, you know, that there is, there does appear to be, you know, good lead leadership uh, across the board where we where we have kind of communicated and kind of pulled together. It's kind of broken down a lot of barriers, really. I think we're all trying to reach the same goal, which is, you know, possibly supporting vulnerable, disadvantaged people, but it has broken down barriers to working together, which has then therefore led us into some sort of positive opportunities as we move forward in a kind of under COVID recovery, but also for the long-term future. I suppose for some people, um, that transition to leading from a distance and doing things remotely has been a little bit more troublesome. But at the same time, it has opened a lot of new doors for businesses, hasn't it? As they've begun to innovate and begun to really think about how they can change up their services. And as you say there, it has had some real, real positives, particularly so in alleviating the social isolation elements of the lockdown. Because as you rightfully said already, mental health is key within leadership, isn't it? Not just in terms of the people that you work yeah. with, but also those that benefit from your services. Definitely, definitely. Well, we we sort of identified as a as a charity that actually our um, our charity objects. We've just recently sort of reviewed them and, and widened them because we realised a lot of the the services that we provide for uh, people with drug and alcohol problems who are disadvantaged could also impact on make more a better impact on on people who aren't necessarily. Um, 
uh, using drugs and alcohol problematically at the moment, but potentially could go down that pathway. So it's sort of more earlier intervention and prevention, um, which is how we've kind of now sort of not even slightly changed some of our service delivery. And we've, we've, we've actually got a new project that's going to be opening um, in October that has actually sort of come about because of because of COVID and because of conversations with some of the people we've been networking with. It was a sort of opportunity to do something different together. So we've, we've grabbed that opportunity and uh, we are setting up a new kind of project that will engage um, particularly sort of socially isolated people, you know, vulnerable people, uh, people who are possibly lonely. I mean, one of the difficulties with, um, you know, people who are more disadvantaged is they've got more barriers to, to moving on in their life. You know, gaining new skills, education, getting on, you know, getting debt sorted out, finances, um, you know, starting benefit claims. So our kind of project is really aimed at helping those people get over those little barriers, which which often become big barriers to help them moving on, and that in turn kind of helps reduce um, you know mental health issues or helps them exacerbating into sort of further more problematic issues. Mm. The problem we are finding, obviously, is is you know the, the the difficulty of of running groups and setting up services at this kind of difficult time. Um, but that again, through collaboration, through talking to other organisations, you know, we're kind of setting up a project so that when we can run with it, it's ready to go. Um, and that will be really around you know when we can have more groups together, when when older people are able to sort of engage a bit more effectively together. Mm. And which I guess will come next year. Yes, of course, and that's something that we'll certainly be uh, keeping an eye on as well, just seeing how things start to change over the uh, the next few months. One thing that yeah. I have noticed um, about this period of time is that leaders have really stood up and been counted as well in terms of inspiring and motivating people, but also reassuring them and just keeping things going during this time. However, when you are the person in a leadership role that's doing all of the inspiring, let's say, when you need a little bit of inspiration and motivation for yourself, where do you find it? in a time of crisis and also in the everyday environment, what is it that keeps you going and makes you get up in the morning? I think it's, um, I think what keeps me going makes me get up in the morning is knowing that we, we make a difference. Um, those first two weeks were a short start, so I went out on the street myself with our, with our outreach worker. It really reminded me of why we do what we do. And that sounds a bit kind of, you know, cliched, but, but it mm. really, it really did. It really did sort of, you know, spur me on to just remind me, um, you know, as leaders, we often uh, a little bit detached from the face-to-face frontline work, but that gave me a really good opportunity to to kind of re-engage. And um, but also, I think um, what we do do regularly, and what we've been doing more recently, is more communication with other chief execs. Um, you know, collaborating or just kind of getting together and kind of just sharing some of our concerns and thoughts um, and worries. Really, you know, as 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 a chief exec, it's, you know, I can't talk. To I've seen necessarily about how concerned I am, but by sharing it with with others, um, it does really help. And I think that has really proved quite successful. Um, we've got one or two organisations, the Clare Foundation and Community Impact Bucks, that kind of work in in the in the county to kind of bring charities together. Um, and that really has helped, um, and as well as linking in with the, the the council to kind of have shared ideas and shared plans. Um, but I also have a really good coach, to be fair. Um, I think any leader kind of should have some sort of coach or mentor. And my coach, Alexander Smith, mm. has done fantastically to kind of just support me through what would generally be really worrying times. Um, I still continue to meet my chair as well as a board. We've, we've actually managed to meet every four weeks regularly. Um, so I feel I'm, uh, you know, I think I'm in a you know, good position where I can 
share concerns and worries and, and, and ideas and opportunities with other people, which is which is good. I don't know if I'm unique to the, to, or, you know, whether it's unique to some, you know, the way we work in certain areas, but I think that really has helped. Um, and then also listening to sort of some really positive stories from, from other people. I mean, this is all kind of doom and gloom on the media, but, but there are some really good kind of heartrending stories that have happened in relation to the sort of better engagement, people, you know, doing things differently um, that they didn't have the opportunity before. And I think as we move forward, there's certainly a, I think a, a hunger for better collaboration and for really kind of not working in isolation and really, you know, working together more effectively so that partnerships can develop and, and then the people who benefit in the long run, they're the, the beneficiaries. Um, so we've been working quite closely recently with CAB, um, MIND, AGK, to look at how we can uh, develop future services to make them more kind of um, more diverse and more inclusive. And those conversations wouldn't have happened, I don't think, had we not had a, a, a realisation that actually there's quite a bit of a lot of communities that aren't, aren't engaged. Mm. There are so many important things to take away from that, absolutely, in the sense that there, we do need greater collaboration going forward. And as leaders, it's something we should encourage because we're not lone wolves within our roles. We can work with others. We can learn from others. And indeed, for those younger aspiring leaders out there, as you say, having a mentor to turn to, someone you can learn from, is one of the best things you can do because leadership, of course, is a continuous learning process. And Very as we, so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And as we look to the future, because I do certainly want to um, address that just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program uh, Colin um, we know that we are going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal in all walks of life in the way that we live in the way that we work but over the uh, the next 12 months what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at the Oasis partnership and indeed where do you see yourselves being this time next year well, what I hope to achieve is, is uh, a sort of soft launch of our new project uh, which is based in Chesham but it's a real kind of community project it's um you know, we've got lots of opportunities to engage different partners to provide training and things. My idea would be that that kind of launches quite effectively and that then, in, you know, within 12 months, it's quite a, a buzzy kind of community resource that's accessed by a whole range of different people in the community for, for a range of different projects. And I've got a kitchen, I've got a kitchen now, I've got a, you know, a studio, an art workshop, a classroom. So we've got lots of opportunities to provide services that are around engaging and you know, working with people who have possibly during this time highlighted that perhaps they are, they are lonely or, you know, what their future is based on the fact that they've been stuck at home or something. We sort of want to try and provide a, a wide range of really inclusive kind of services that, that, that the, the community wants. So for Oasis, that's a really good opportunity for us for the next 12 months. Again, it's solely based on fundraised money um, and the building is a very kind, generous donation for, for several years from the, from the landlady. Um, again, collectively, kind of working together and talking together about how we might change the future. But uh, I think I think it's positive. I think we, like I said before, collaboration is really important. Talking together, communicating, and just listening as well will make a real difference to how we come out of this, but also change the way I think we we work in the future. Um, which is positive if we can see positives out of this horrible situation. Mm-hmm. 
it's all we can do, isn't it? Just be positive about the uh, the future, despite how negative it might seem, um, especially out in the uh, the media with all of the messages coming through at the moment. Um, and honestly, I'll be keeping one eye on um, your activities over the next 12 months, Colin, because it's some fantastic aims and um, ambitions that you do have. And I think it would be wonderful, in fact, to catch up at some point in the next year and invite you back onto the programme just to see how some of those ambitions are being borne out. That would be wonderful. Um, at the moment, I've got nothing on our website or anything about it. So, you know, over the coming months, I'll be sort of promoting it, putting more information out there. So it'd be great to, uh, to give you feedback on how well, how well it's going. Be wonderful for there to be, to be some positive news to share at that point in time as well. I have to say, Colin, it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the programme today. And do, most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, take care and stay safe with everything still going on. Excellent. Thank you very much. I would also reiterate that message to each one of our listeners today. You do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. I was pleased to welcome Colin McGregor-Patterson onto today's programme, the CEO of the Oasis Partnership. Um, Next up on the programme today, it's time to hand over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, as well as holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of former Prime Minister Tony Blair. He has been a member of the Upper House of Parliament since August 2015, when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I do hope that you all enjoy listening, just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him, and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's Uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 Uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future. Mm 
on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into 
the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, 
interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.